Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. Good morning. Hello, hello. Good morning, good morning. Um, I just want to let you know there's a bit of a correction in that video. So it's not on Monday. It's actually Thursday, August 25th. Ladies, you can sign up today in the foyer, but please do so quickly if you're interested because space is limited. There's only 15 spots because to connect me to do it in an intimate environment, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. This is going to be a long message if you guys don't laugh at my jokes. Oh, <laughs> okay. There you go. There you go. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, well, so like Mitchell and Kieran said, um, we're Jade and Luke. We are very nervous, but also very excited to be with you this morning and to be sharing. Um, I've attended WCF my entire life with a little bit of a hiatus for four years when I lived in Toronto to go to university. My parents are Des and Kim Griffiths, if you know them. Um, Yeah, good job. Did a good job raising me. I'm on the big kids stage. It worked out. Anyways, but I serve uh, primarily on the worship team here, but I've also been involved in youth and young adults. And mm-hmm. then why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I feel like Mitchell kind of stole our introduction. We're going to be talking about that a bit further, but <laughs> appreciate the intro. Um, my name is Luke, as Jade mentioned. I've been going to WCF for the last two and a half to three years um, as a member. And prior to that, I went to a small little church in LaSalle, Open Bible Fellowship. And uh, my family... Yeah, you can clap if you want. <laughs> Two people over My family there. <laughs> was heavily involved there throughout most of my life, where my dad served on leadership. Also, you might rec- uh, recognize my last name and now Jade's last name, Cameron's. Cameron's Bookstore back in the day. Yeah, you can give a little shout out. A little, yeah, a little shout out for there. Um, but I'm not too new to WCF because I did attend and get the chance to attend youth and young adults growing up. And so a lot of my friends went here. And now it's cool because I'm on the other side of that as a youth leader and uh, I also serve on the media team. So. Yeah. So you're probably wondering, who gave these kids a mic? Well, it was Pastor RJ and Mary. So if we do a bad job, you'll have to take it up with them. Um, but hopefully we do do a good job. And, you know, it's all good. We'll just, we'll see how it goes today. <sighs> but in all honesty, we will be the first to say that we don't have all the answers. We don't know all the things. Um, everything that we're going to be sharing uh, this morning are things that we are still working through with the Lord and, and working out in our own lives. Um, definitely not the most qualified to be up here, but we are very, very humbled for the opportunity. Um, and so what we're going to do this morning is just share a little bit of our story, share a little bit of what the Holy Spirit's been revealing to us in the last few seasons, and we just hope you're encouraged by it. Absolutely. So let's open up in a word of prayer this morning. Dear God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for each and every person here. We thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives, and we pray that this morning it won't be our words that are spoken, but that you'll speak through us. We come before you humbly today, and we ask that you open the hearts of your people so that they may receive what you need them to hear. But most of all, God, ultimately our heart today is that in everything you continue to be glorified. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen. So, as Kieran and Mitchell told us, um, our, today our message is titled, Run Your Race, with our key scripture being Hebrews 12, 1 to 13. 
So the media team has a photo and video from the archives that they'll put up in a second of us running our races. It's like the oldest found footage from our parents um, yeah. that we can find. And as they mentioned as well, for those of you who know Jader, I personally, you know that running's been a part of our life for quite a long time. And this makes it a topic that's extra special to talk to you guys about today. So we'll wait for that. If not, we'll I know what it's like being on the media Luke team. So we'll just, oh, 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 baby so Jade first here, first. there's baby Jade. You can see the uh, resemblance to Mr. G. Back when you didn't, you couldn't record video with your phone. And you had Anyways, you can see her like just at like the front of the back. Come on now, right? So, and that continued for a long time. Jade went to awesome many times. And she's also a jack of all trades because she also was a varsity athlete in university and won the national championship as a volleyball player. So she's really just a jack of all trades. But there's also a picture of little Luke. Yeah, start him start young. Catching right? the running bug. Yeah. I think it was like, race was maybe like a few kilometers or something. He loves long distance and I don't understand it. It's like, why do you want to put your body through that kind of pain? I don't get it. Like, what? how long is the marathon? For? 42 kilometers. 42 kilometers. He's like, oh yeah, I like to do that. Who likes to do that? Anyways, but this is little Luke. He likes cross country. He's run four in the Detroit Marathon four times, three halves, one full. Yeah, he, so we're really excited to talk about this topic. We're very passionate about running. Another thing is that to know Jade or I personally, you know that we're quite different from each other. And running, as we've just seen pretty clearly, is no <laughs> exception. Jade's best event is the 100 meter, and my best event is the half marathon. But I think we both agree that life's more like a marathon, not a sprint, yes, right? Yes, definitely. But as any runner or athlete, for that matter, knows, there are some key ingredients to success no matter what race or sport you may be involved with. So today our objective is to walk through some of those components necessary to running the race of faith well. Yeah, so our first uh, key component, and this isn't exhaustive, they're just four points that kind of stood out to us the most. Um, but the first one ladders up to this theme of identity. So we run our race of faith well by knowing who we are and whose we are. So as an athlete, to perform your best in a race, you need to be confident. You need to be confident in your abilities to perform, and you need to be mentally prepared to block out any and all doubts. And anyone who's run a race before, you know you're warming up for your event. It's just you running. This isn't a team sport, and the doubts do come. And in the Christian life, it's the same thing. But we know that as Christians, we are most confident when we fully understand and remember who we are in Christ and that we belong to him. So we are not in the race because of what we bring to the table. We are in the race simply because we're children of God. In Colossians 1, verse 12 to 14, it says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that's good news this morning. I think sometimes we forget that our salvation isn't anything we earned. It's not something we deserve. Colossians says that, you know, Jesus was the substitute for us and he qualified us to be in this family and to share in the inheritance that comes with it. So nothing we did to be here, God qualifies us. And so as we think about running our race with endurance and running it well, our confidence should rest not in our own abilities, but in him. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 11, Paul says, But he, as in God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, it's when we admit, accept, even boast about the fact that we don't have what it takes in our own strength, then Christ's power may rest on us. And so we see here God qualifies us to be in the race, and he also equips us through his strength and his power to run it. God has also made each one of us unique. So our race might look different than others, right? And in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 to 18, this is a passage that we know quite well, but it's there because it's quite important. And it says, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear anything? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. So like I mentioned, we hear this passage a lot, and we can see here that God has given us each specific, specific gifts, abilities, and talents. So it's important for us to embrace that new uniqueness instead of trying to be the same runner as those around us. Richard Foster, who's a theologian, he says it best, and he says, who we are, not who we want to be, is the only offering we have to give. And we really like that because if we want to be effective, um, sorry, if we want to be effective, there's no room for comparison in the Christian life. Comparison is something I've struggled with, and I think a lot of us can relate to that. Comparison is very easy now, nowadays in our lives, and we find this only robs us of the joy that God offers. Instead, we need to fully embrace who God made us and bring it as a living sacrifice to him every day. Yep. Our key scripture unpacks this further as well, and we can see this in Hebrews 12. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set out before us. And in this verse, the huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith is referencing the chapter previous in Hebrews 11, where it speaks of numerous examples like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the list goes on. This great cloud of witnesses is supposed to, is supposed to encourage us. We're supposed to look to these stories of these people, this heritage of the Christian faith and these testimonies and be so encouraged that we throw off the weight of sin and everything that trips us up and run our own race with endurance. We think that this advice can also be applied to our own life and in our own Christian communities as well. Mm-hmm. We are supposed to be encouraged by the testimonies of our brothers and sisters in Christ, amen? But how many of us hear those testimonies and instead of responding in awe of how good and loving and amazing our God is, we can get discouraged because we can wonder where our own breakthrough is in our own life, right? Instead, like Hebrews 12 says, let us strip off every weight, the weight of sin, the weight of comparison, the weight of jealousy. You know your own story, right? So you can fill in the blank. When these things are no longer weighing us down, we can run our own race with endurance. See, it's your race to run, which means that no one else can run it for you. So we need to embrace who we are uniquely in Christ to be.
Amen. So the first component we see to running the race of faith well, knowing who we are and whose we are. And the second is that we run our race of faith well by being coachable. So in my running career, I was fortunate to have amazing coaches. One of them was my dad, and the other was his best friend, a man named Joe Winnick. And the best coaches are knowledgeable about the sport because they competed in it themselves and they've been around it for a long time. They usually also know how to encourage you, but they also know when to push you to be the best you can be through discipline and training. But it's not enough just to have a good coach. You as an athlete need to be coachable. And coachability refers to an athlete's attitude, not their athletic skills. According to NCSA Sports, which is the Student Athlete Recruiting Service, 35% of college coaches in the States say that character is the most important factor in a recruit, ranking above their academics and even above their athletic ability. So what we want to do is we want to go through four key traits of coachable athletes and pull out some key scriptures to see what this looks like in the Christian life. So the first trait is that coachable athletes are open-minded and humble when receiving feedback. Who here likes constructive criticism? I do not, because I've encountered <laughs> way too many people who say that their feedback is constructive, but it's really just plain old critical. And it's difficult to trust these people because you're like, you don't have my best interest at heart here. You're just saying things to hurt me. But the same goes with the Lord. It is way easier to receive his feedback, receive his correction in our lives when we trust that he loves us and we trust that he has our best interests at heart. In Hebrews 12, five to six, and have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. So we see here that God's discipline is always done out of his love for us. His feedback and his correction in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit always comes in the form of conviction, not condemnation. And we know that conviction gives us hope on the other side of our, our repentance, and it keeps us firmly rooted in the love of God. Like it says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So God is our trustworthy father, and he's also our trustworthy coach. We can trust his coaching, his discipline, his feedback in our lives because we know that he has our best interest at heart. But receiving feedback with humility also means being willing to accept that we don't always know what's best. Like it says in Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. We submit to God because we trust him and we know when he's asking us to do something, it's only because it's going to point us in the right direction and head us down the right path. Amen? Absolutely. Another trait of coachable athletes is that coachable athletes actively seek feedback from their coach. It's not enough to just receive feedback well. Coachable athletes actively seek it. And in Psalms 139, we think this is a great example. In verses 23 to 25, it says, David's talking. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You can see so clearly here that David sought God's feedback. And despite his shortcomings in his life, and as we know his life, there were many, 
He goes down in biblical history after a man after God's own heart. This poses the question for us. How many of us proactively seek feedback from God? How many of us proactively seek instruction from God? Or are we primarily reactive, doing what we think is right first and then waiting for God to call us out after? Another thing is that coachable athletes willingly implement coach feedback. It's not enough to just receive feedback and seek it. You also have to do what your coach tells you to do at the end of the day. In James 1.22, it says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's so good. Because I think there's sometimes so many of us that are like waiting for an angel to drop down from heaven and tell us what to do in a, in a situation. But verses like James remind us that God has given us plenty of instructions right there in his word. And that when we read it and we meditate on it, then we can take that instruction and implement it in our lives, right? And our last trait of coachable athletes is my favorite because it's the hardest. They check their ego at the door. You know, if you're a fan of track and field, then you'll know that the world championships were on this summer. They took place in July and we spent a lot of time at my parents' house, actually with his parents too, because we're all fans of track and field, watching the best of the best athletes compete in a bunch of different events. And these are world-class athletes, literally the best in that event in the entire world and all of them have coaches. See, they realize that even with their amazing athletic skill and their plenty of years of experience in their craft, they never outgrow the need for coaching. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You see, regardless of how far along in our race of faith we are, even if we're at the stage like we should be where we're discipling others, we ourselves never outgrow the need to be coached. We must stay diligent. We must keep training. We must keep actively seeking coaching from the Lord, the different mentors he's placed in our lives. Otherwise, we risk being disqualified in the race ourselves. Amen. We never outgrow the need to be coached. So the second component to running the race of faith well being coachable. The third ladders up to this theme of purpose, and it's that we run our race of faith by understanding why we're running in the first place. So are there any competitive people in the room today? That is very accurate. <laughs> to, to know Luke or I is to know that we are super competitive. Any game, any sport, and any activity, like badminton in the backyard, a game of cards, like we compete to win, even when it's against each other. And some people might view this as a character flaw. I just view it as a genetic trait that I inherited from my parents. <laughs> because growing up in the Griffiths household, we had a lot of fun but we never participated in anything just for fun. Because like my mom says, winning is fun. So that's why we can be, there are no participation ribbons. Exactly. And I think the moment I realized how intense this competitiveness was, was in 2020, when for her birthday, Mrs. Griffiths put on the Griffiths Family Olympics, where all of us, you know, siblings, spouses, and even the parents were pitted against each other in a various activities for actual medals. For actual this medals. is what she wanted to do for her birthday. <laughs> and I think that's when I realized I married into the right family. Yep. <laughs> so 
Why are we running? We're running to win. Amen. First Corinthians 9 in verses 24 to 26, it says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. And all the competitive people said, amen. <laughs> but I have a feeling Paul is talking about something a little bit bigger here that we're not competing to win bragging rights, right? And in verse 25, he continues, he says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. You know, I've been, well, we've both been competitive athletes our whole life, but um, from elementary school through to high school and even university, I've competed on competitive teams. And I think the moment that I realized it was all over and I was just, I just had to be a normal adult was when I realized I had to be motivated to continue working out and staying fit just for my own mental health and wellness. Like there was no prizes to be won, no team atmosphere, nothing we were competing for. And it just, it wasn't the same. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying he's not just training. He's not shadow boxing. He's not just staying fit to look good in his Instagram photos or to wear that outfit that he wants to wear on vacation. He is competing in the real deal and he's competing to win and the prize is an eternal one. Now I wanna pause here because I think for competitive people like myself, we can get tripped up by the word win, right? Because all of us know that to win, other people need to lose. There's only one winner. Like you don't win second place, you're the first place loser, am I right? Mm. <laughs> Sorry, it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so then what does running in God's upside down kingdom mean? What in what running to win? My apologies, let's start over. <laughs> so then what does running to win mean in this upside down kingdom? And what is the prize that we're talking about? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, it says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord and the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Mm -hmm. So we can see here that in this race, it's not the fastest person who wins. It's not the strongest person who wins. It's not even the most talented person who wins. It's those who fight the good fight, those who finish the race, and those who keep the faith that win at the end of the day. We can also see here in this verse that there's not only one prize. So I think that's a huge sigh of relief for us, right? This crown of righteousness that we win is not just for us. It says it's for all those who have longed for the Lord's appearing. When we look at 2 Timothy 4, we can see that it reminds us that there are enough prizes to go around. That as Christians, we are running with each other. We are never running against each other. We're pushing each other to be the best that we can be. We know this verse well. It says in Proverbs 27, 17, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Another example that I think looks at this as well that we think is really good, it says, the best athletes we find jump at the opportunity to run with other people that are faster than them and that are further along in their career than them. Why? Well, they know that even if the other person is faster, it increases their chances that they'll run faster and even maybe hit a personal best, right? Yep. Yep. Just by being in the same race as them. So we run to win, but we also run to glorify God. 
Matthew 4, verse 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So yes, there are going to be blessings we receive in life. There's going to be um, accolades that we attain, acknowledgements that we get, but none of those are the purpose of our race. You see, the challenge that we have in the Christian life is the same challenge that competitive athletes face, and it's to take all the glory, all the credit, all the recognition for ourselves. But as Christians, we give glory, we never take it. So about five years ago, I learned this the hard way. I was a varsity athlete at Ryerson University, and in my third year of competing, the second semester, I had a different injury every month, and I'm not even kidding. It started out with a sprained ankle, then I got my first concussion, and then I got shingles from the stress of those injuries, and then I wrapped up the season with a broken hand. And I know you're all thinking like, girl, were you a gymnast? No. Those injuries would have made a lot more sense if I was a gymnast, but I guess I'm just clumsy, I don't know what. But I remember really struggling in that season and asking the Lord, you know, how am I supposed to glorify you in my sport if I can't even play? And that summer, once the semester was over, as I continued wrestling with the Lord on that, um, I felt like the Holy Spirit convicted me and, and he revealed something to me. And so I wrote the following down in my journal. The hardest pill to swallow of Christian life is that our lives are not our own. That this isn't all about us and this isn't all for us. There's a bigger story at play here and it's all about God's glory. Now we get the chance to choose whether we want to accept the role he's given us to play or not. But the star of the show, the one receiving all applause at the end of our hard work is and should always be him. So regardless of the role he's given me to play, whether it's a life of hardship, whether it's relatively easy, or whether it's somewhere in between, I have to believe that if he's calling me to walk through it, then it's going to be the way he is most glorified in my life. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not suggesting that God causes bad things to happen in our lives, and I'm not even suggesting that we should just be okay with pain and suffering and get over it. But what I am saying is not to believe the lie of the enemy that God cannot be glorified in your race of faith when it's not going how you think it should. God is so much bigger than that. He is so much more powerful than that. Like we read, his power is displayed through weakness. So quite honestly, like I thought I had to be the best player on my team, the best, you know, superstar. And that's how people would be like, oh my gosh, look at that girl. She's so short, she plays volleyball. She must be, someone must be giving her her strength, but that is not what happened. They saw, whoa, that girl is getting busted up. She's had so many injuries, but she still has joy. Where is that coming from? You know, she's still a leader on her team. Where is that coming from? So in weakness, most of the times, that's when God is glorified the most in our lives. Like it says in Romans 8, 28, I read it before, but here it is again in the Amplified. And we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his plan and purpose. You see, the purpose of our race, the purpose of our calling, the purpose of our lives isn't to boast about how great it looks or how great it's going, because we all know a lot of the times it doesn't go that great. Simply, our job is to reflect the glory of God in any and every season of our race and whatever it looks like. You see, if our lives aren't pointing those around us to the Father, then what is it all for? 
I think a perfect example of someone whose life's purpose was pointing people to Jesus is John the Baptist. I think we could all agree he had a pretty important job. He was literally like preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene. The voice in the wilderness crying out, the kingdom of God is near. And in John 3.30, he makes a powerful statement. He says, he, as in Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. You see, John could have looked at the work of his ministry and been like, ooh, you see the job God gave me? It's important. I want to pat myself on the back. This is pretty neat. But he didn't do that. Instead, he had a full understanding in every phase of his race of the greater purpose and the greater calling that his calling laddered up to. And it was always about Jesus, and it was always about the kingdom of God. You see, it's the same in our life. There's a bigger story at play here, and our race is but a small portion of it. You know, we can try to accept the applause and accept the glory for the little role that we have to play, or we could submit ourselves to God's plan, to his purpose, and point the glory back to him again and again and again where it rightfully belongs. Amen. So we can see, <laughs> we can see here that the third component to running the race of faith well is understanding why you're running. And our fourth and final point is we run our race of faith by enduring pain and discouragement. Anyone who's run knows there's a moment while you're running, usually when your lungs start burning, the lactic acid kicks in and your legs just feel heavy. For Jade, this usually happens at the 300 meter mark. And for me, it's around the 30 kilometer mark. Now, this is not a dig. She runs a lot faster than I do. But in this moment, your brain asks you a crucial question. Why am I doing this? Yep. Right? And this has happened many times in my career. But it was the worst when I ran in the Detroit Marathon. The Detroit Marathon has about 20 to 30,000 people that run it each year. And at the beginning of the race, naturally, your adrenaline is high. You see people you know cheering you on. Like Jade at 5.30 in the morning, yep, like, come on, Luke, I want to be parents. here right now. Parades are... <laughs> Love you. I did want to be there. There's parades going on, and you feel pretty good because your wife's there. <laughs> In the half marathon, that energy continues for the, a good portion of the race. When you run the full marathon, though, you watch all of those half marathoners finish, and you slowly come to the realization, I have to do what I just did all over again. <laughs> You're only halfway done. Now, you're headed out to Belle Isle, and there's no spectators there. It's just you and your thoughts. <laughs> And I feel like the same can happen in the race of life. There's times where it feels like there's only bad things that are happening to us. There's just trial after trial after trial, right? We've all been there and we can feel like we're really out on our own. Everything in us is screaming to give up. And we wonder why are we even doing this in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's why it's so important to remember why we're running. Because it gives us the ability to endure the discomfort, the pain, the discouragement that we will inevitably face in our race. We endure pain and discomfort by keeping our eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, verses 2 to 3, it says, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. 
Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. We can see so clearly, and we know this to be true, that Jesus endured his race. He endured the cross. He stayed focused in on his purpose, the joy set before him, which was the crown, the kingdom of God, his relationship that was with us. And as Christians, we are to follow his example, to stay focused in on the purpose of our race, but also we're to stay focused in on him and him alone. When we keep our eyes on Jesus and his example, we are reminded that we serve a God who doesn't ask us to do anything he wasn't willing to do first. That should be very relieving for us. He understands what we're going through. And Jesus is the example of this. He initiates and perfects our faith. I think a really good example of this, of what enduring hardship looks like, is in, found in Luke, in Luke 22, verses 42 to 44. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's getting ready to endure the cross, and he's talking to God, and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like great drops of blood. We can see here so clearly that Jesus processed his emotions with God. It was natural for him to feel fear. I think that's something we forget. And he processed his emotions with God, and that's something that we should do as well. Jesus acknowledged his emotions and his fears. He didn't disassociate from them. He didn't act like they didn't exist. And I think as Christians... We can think that the evidence of having faith is remaining unfazed by the storm. That's not true. It's not true at all. We only look, need to look through all of the laments of scriptures, different stories throughout scripture to realize that this is not the case. We need to acknowledge our emotions and process them with God. Another really important piece is we also need to allow the Holy Spirit to comfort us. In the verse that we read, it says, an angel came to comfort and strengthen Jesus the king of the universe, an angel came to comfort him. Mm-hmm. And I think this so also clearly reminds us of David's life and David's words. It says in Psalms 23, 4, it says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sometimes as Christians, we are so quick to want to run through the valley. But when we do that, we can skip over a major miracle that happens in the valley. His rod and his staff comfort us. When the Holy Spirit comforts us, it doesn't always change our situation. I'm going to say that again. When the Holy Spirit comforts us, it doesn't always change our situation. Oftentimes it doesn't. But it can give us a new perspective. He reminds us why we're running in the first place. He helps us see our race as God sees it. When we allow the Holy Spirit to comfort us, we can find strength to continue our race and say the very difficult words, God, not my will, but yours be done. Amen. So as we prepare for communion, um, I want to wrap up enduring pain and discouragement by talking about Job. A lot of us know his story. The Bible says that he was a good guy. He was blameless, righteous, and he honored the Lord. But still, even with that amazing track record, he still went through some of the most discouraging, most difficult situations in life. 
from sickness to loss, even abandonment from friends and family. And throughout the whole book of Job, God, um, Job lays out a, a ton of different rants to the Lord. He processes his emotions with the Lord. He vents and he asks a lot of why questions. And in chapters 38 to 41, God finally responds. And so I can see that you're probably like, ooh, what does God say? You're going to tell me what God says, right? No, I'm actually going to tell you how Job responded to God's response because that's what shook me. Basically, God was like in chapters 38 to 41, like, hey, Job, look how sovereign I am. Look at everything that I've created and look how little you know. (laughs) I was like, okay, okay, God, he went there. But how is Job going to respond? Because I'm thinking Job's going to be like, and this is unfair, but he doesn't say that. In Job 42, verse 5, Job stands before the Lord and says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. You see, even after everything that Job had gone through in his life, his response to the Lord wasn't, all right, so when are you going to make this right? When are you going to give back to me everything that was stolen away? How are you going to make this fair? He didn't do that. Instead, he simply chose to be aware of the presence of God in his circumstance and to stand in awe of the fact that he got to experience the Lord for himself. You see, we need to ask ourselves a difficult question. Do we love God and treasure his presence more than the gifts he brings us in life? You see, Job got to experience God for himself and for him, that was the biggest gift of all at the end of his life. And I wanna encourage you this morning that God isn't asking you to endure discouragement and endure pain out of duty. He's asking you to endure it in a loving, intimate relationship with him. You see, when we run to God and not away from him in difficult circumstances, we give him the chance to show up in our circumstance, and we in turn get the gift of experiencing him with our own eyes. He's no longer just words on a page. He's no longer this figure in the clouds. We have relationship history with God, and we can take that knowledge, that understanding, and that experience with him to the next discouragement and the next discouragement and the next. Amen. So to run the race of faith well, we need to know who we are and whose we are, having confidence in who we are as children of God and who he made us uniquely to be. We need to be coachable seeking, receiving, and implementing God's feedback in our lives. We need to understand why we're running in the first place, which is to win the crown of righteousness at the end of our race, but ultimately to glorify our Father in heaven. And finally, we need to endure pain and discouragement by following Jesus' example, processing our emotions with the Lord, and allowing the Holy Spirit to comfort us. So why don't we all stand for communion? And I'm just going to open up a word of prayer as we break the bread. Lord Jesus, your word tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, to do so in remembrance of you. So this morning, we remember your sacrifice on the cross. We look to you as the ultimate example and as the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you, Lord, that in the work of the cross, we can see that you are good and loving and just. We remember your body broken so that we can be made whole. Jesus, as your word says, you were pierced for our transgressions, you were crushed for our iniquities, 
The punishment that brought us peace was on you, and by your wounds we are healed. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's partake of the bread. And before we move into the the cup, we want to acknowledge and recognize that there might be a lot of you in the room that are worried that you've already disqualified yourself from your race. Maybe you started, you feel like you started a little too late in life or that you've made one too many detours. We want to just encourage you that as we focus on the blood of Jesus this morning and take the cup together to remind yourself that the blood of Jesus is enough, that it's powerful enough, it's strong enough to redeem any and everything that was lost, time that was lost, wrong decisions that you made. We serve a redeeming king. And what I like to do um, when I enter into communion and take the cup is to just, just trust the Holy Spirit and trust God. I just thank you that you are washing out what needs to be washed out in this moment as I trust you, Lord. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was spilled for us. You being the king of the universe came down into our world and made yourself the substitute for our sin so that we could have relationship with the Father. You paid the price, you paid the price we deserved and for that we are so, so thankful, Lord. We pray that before we go this morning that we would use this moment to reset and remember what is most important and it's that your sacrifice for us is enough Your blood is powerful enough to wash away all our sin. So we thank you, Lord, for qualifying us even though we didn't deserve it and empowering us each and every day to live lives worthy of that calling. In Jesus' name, let us partake of the cup. Thank you so much for everyone coming this morning and thank you for your time. Hallelujah. Windsor Christian Fellowship. You You have been equipped. equipped. Go be the church. Amen. Amen.